An angry judge, a clearly frustrated prosecutor, and the defendant himself, Kyle Rittenhouse, breaking down in sobs. <laughs> I didn't do anything wrong. I defended myself. What does it take to get a more in-depth look into the week's top local news stories? The Debrief brings you inside for a one-on-one -on -one conversation with our reporters every week, right here, right now. The Debrief. Welcome into The Debrief. I'm Adam Cooperstein, and it was an unusual move to see a defendant in a murder trial testifying in his own self-defense. Kyle Rittenhouse, now 18 years old, broke down in tears and claimed that he acted in self-defense when he shot three men, killing two of them during a night of racial justice protest in Kenosha, Wisconsin last year. The trial here has captivated America. Uh, between Rittenhouse getting emotional on the stand, the judge admonishing the prosecution multiple times, and to help us get a better sense of what we're witnessing here and what might be coming next, we bring in an expert who we love to chat with. That is criminal defense attorney Michael Bachner. Michael, thank you so much for the time, because this has been such a show as it unfolds in front of cameras as well. And I know you've been in courtrooms and you've seen a lot of things, but let's start with this defendant on the stand in a murder trial with this unusual decision to testify in his own self-defense. How unusual is that? In a self-defense case, it's less unusual because uh, the defendant has to actually put into issue the fact that he acted in a manner that raises the self-defense issue for the jury to consider. And then in Wisconsin, as in many other states, the prosecution then has the burden of disproving self-defense beyond a reasonable doubt. So. I think the reason when Rittenhouse took the stand, the judge gave him a little bit of a lecture, which is not unusual, saying, you sure you want to do this? You have a constitutional right to remain silent. This all to the jury. But I think the judge believed, as many other observers did, that there is a reasonable doubt already and that the defendant, by taking the stand, could have removed that reasonable doubt through poor testimony. And when a defendant testifies, in many ways, everything else that happened in the case becomes much less significant because then it becomes, do I believe this guy? If the jury doesn't believe Rittenhouse, they're going to convict him. So I think the judge who has kind of indicated what appears to me to be a predisposition or predilection towards a not guilty verdict, I think he wanted to be sure that this defendant knew what he was doing. But to answer your question more directly, in a criminal case, it's extremely rare, extremely rare for a defendant to testify. But in a self-defense case, less rare. You mentioned the judge's predisposition. Uh, I mean, I, I have been surprised uh, to see the way he has behaved towards the prosecution. Have you ever witnessed something quite like that? I know you've been a, a criminal defense attorney on the other side, but to see the prosecutor really, he, he was, you could see the expression on his face. He was taken aback by some of the shouting in front of the jury and in front of those cameras. I have almost never seen a judge act that way with any lawyer, but it's much, much less common to act that way with a prosecutor. Judges see these prosecutors on a daily basis. They have to interact with the office on a daily basis. Generally, the people who elect these judges or get them appointed, et cetera, they like to see law and order. So judges are oftentimes you know, less inclined to hammer on prosecutors. And frankly, sometimes they should be more inclined to do so. But the behavior to me, and looking at it objectively as a criminal defense lawyer, to do it in front of the jury in the way he was doing it, I thought was over the top, to say the least. And 
had this been done to the defense lawyer, had he been uh, screamed at and berated the way the judge did, I think an appellate court would look at this and say the defendant was deprived of a fair trial by the way the judge interacted with the defense lawyer. And look, the government at the end of the day, the people, they have a right to a fair trial too. And I think there's an argument to be made that this judge has let the jury know what he thinks about the case. And frankly speaking, having been a lawyer now for 40 years and tried a bunch of cases, at least 100 of them at trial, I can tell you that sometimes the evidence becomes at times less significant than the way the jury thinks the judge thinks of the evidence. And they can be motivated and they can be influenced by the way the judge acts in court because judges, they have respect, they have the robe, and he's 75 years old, he's an experienced guy, and I think he's sending messages to this jury. What does your gut tell you about the way the jury responded to Rittenhouse and the emotion that he was showing? Whether it was tears or not, he was clearly broken down when he was claiming that he feared for his life when he fired those shots. You know, I, I, to the extent that there is a mixed reaction, that is, some of the jurors believed him and some didn't, that's all the defense cares about. That's beyond. That's a reasonable doubt. If you can get some of the jurors to believe him and some don't, the defense in some ways has done its job because whether or not this defendant would be retried if there was a hung jury is an open question. The reaction when I looked at it was, I thought it was some crocodile tears going on there. I actually didn't see any tears. I saw a lot of emotion. I saw tears with mom and the jury. I can tell you, I've tried cases where I brought the parents there and I brought the wife there or the daughter there. The jurors look every, they're the most incredibly observant group of people. They see everything. And I think the reaction of the parents to know that if we convict your son, he's going to jail for the rest of his life for 60 years or 40 years, that impacts them. I'm going to simplify things for one moment because from the outside looking in with no legal expertise, you can say, hold on a second. This, at the time, 17-year-old showed up at a racially charged protest. This was a year ago. This is in the wake of the George Floyd protest across America. He showed up with an AR-style rifle, a big gun. Does that mean that he bears any sort of responsibility for incitement by doing that, even if, even if this hadn't happened? It's a great question. The prosecution has been trying to demonstrate that the defendant provoked the incident, because if you provoke the incident, generally speaking, again, the self-defense argument becomes eliminated. You can't be acting in self-defense if you provoke the incident. So at the end of the day, the fact that he brought this very large weapon, and we also have to keep in mind and keep our kind of East Coast predilections about guns out of the picture. In Wisconsin, these types of weapons, and in many parts of the state, they're not that unusual. And um, although it's a big gun and we look at it as a gun that people just use to kill lots of people, um, in a lot of states, Second Amendment rights are looked at differently than we look at them here. But I do agree. Why is a 17-year-old, the prosecution argued, and I think correctly, showing up in a city when, which he does not live, even though he did have relatives there, ostensibly to try and help people who are sick or help people who may have been hurt or help put out fires? And then, as the prosecution brought out, lying about the fact that he's not even an EMT. He didn't even know what he was doing. He had no um, experience in that. But yeah, I think there's a serious question about, did he show up there because he wanted to shoot people? And you know, if I could add, Adam, one of the rulings the judge made before trial that got the judge very upset during the course of the trial was that 
the prosecution wanted to bring out the fact that 10 days before the shooting, Rittenhouse told people that he wanted to go to a CVS and shoot people. So the, the prosecution wanted to bring that out to show that he had an intention to want to do harm to people. The judge said it was too remote, unrelated to this incident, and didn't allow it in. The prosecution in cross-examining Rittenhouse was trying to open up the door for Rittenhouse to step through that door so the prosecution could then reintroduce that. And what the prosecution did foolishly was after Rittenhouse, in fact, did give an answer that allowed that question to open up, he started to ask questions about that ruling the judge had kept out, and the judge shut him off, yelled at him, and said that was a brazen, horrible thing you did. What you should have done was ask me permission outside the presence of the jury to get my permission to reconsider my ruling, and the judge was right on that. At the end of the day, there are serious issues about what Rittenhouse's real motivations and intentions were. And the jury, as in many criminal cases, doesn't have the entire story. Another highlight from this trial is you have the defense calling for a mistrial with prejudice. Help us understand what that means and what they're really trying to do here. That's a real it's interesting legal technicality. Generally speaking, in a criminal case where a defendant asks for a mistrial, and if the judge grants that mistrial motion, usually what happens, almost always, is that defendant gets retried, where the process, where the defendant can show that the need for the mistrial was instigated through the bad conduct of the prosecution. They can argue that the mistrial should be granted with what we call with prejudice, which means no retrials, mm. game over, case over. I believe that this judge is never going to even consider that request of the mistrial until after the verdict. If the verdict is not guilty, he doesn't have to address the mistrial issue. If the verdict is guilty, he can then grant that mistrial and say, okay, I'm granting the mistrial and either permit a retrial or say I'm doing it with prejudice and say no retrial. That's really what was happening here with the mistrial motion. This is a high profile case for many reasons, but what do you think is the precedent that gets set or potential ramifications if Kyle Rittenhouse, who nobody's arguing, he shot three people and killed two at this protest, if he's found not guilty, what are the ramifications for future events like, like that protest in Kenosha, Wisconsin? There has to be some concern in the community about having demonstrations and other types of acts of violence by individuals unhappy with the jury verdict and feeling that this is another instance of white kids of privilege essentially getting away with horrible incidents here. Now, the victims in the case, and correct me if I'm wrong, I, th I think they were um, all Caucasian. Correct. So you're not going to have the same type of racial overtones that you might have in an acquittal, but you certainly could have people out there from various groups being very upset about what apparently is, they believe, the murder of two people and the shooting of a third. What do you expect uh, in, in closing arguments? You know, put, put your criminal defense attorney hat on here. What, what would you expect to be something if you're trying to land this, this uh, defense that, that it was self-defense and that he feared, that Kyle Rittenhouse feared for his life that night, what's what's that closing argument like? Ladies and gentlemen, the defendant took the stand. You saw this young man, 17 years old on the day of this incident, 
He went out armed, yes, but he told you why he did it. And you heard the testimony of people who said he helped people put out fires behind a church. He helped people who were injured. He told you why he had the weapon. And not only did you hear from the testimony of Mr. Rittenhouse establishing that, you heard from the prosecution witnesses, many of whom also corroborated Mr. Rittenhouse's version of events, that Mr. Rosenbaum lunged at him, that another person shot at him. And just coming off that, uh, what you can see is, and this is one of the biggest problems with the prosecution, their witnesses help their case, but they also help the defense. And some would argue that is just an inherent reasonable doubt. Might be a little preview there of what we can expect. Michael Bachner, criminal defense attorney, always a pleasure to have you here on The Debrief. Thank you so much for your time. Great to see you, Adam. And thank you all for tuning in here on The Debrief. Big thanks to our production team, Melissa Mack, Darren Price, and Ben Berkowitz. I'm Adam Cooperstein. We hope to see you right back here on The Debrief next time.